This is Fred Ricciani of TSC News right here on MNN. We've got a jam-packed show for y'all. We have Paul DeMauler Lazenby fresh off of his Supergirl appearance. Actor, stuntman, former pro wrestler and mixed martial artist. He's here to talk about the wild ride to success. We're also going to talk to our buddy Scott Anderson, the People's Podcaster, who's going to present us some random wrestling facts regarding wrestlers who have done mixed martial arts. And we're going to take a special look back on Throwback Thursday from a, a clip, an interview that I did with the guy who had a little dust-up with a dude by the name of WWE Hall of Famer and new Raw General Manager, Kurt Angle. But first, I just want to say thank you to The Undertaker and congratulations on a wonderful career. He recently retired after WrestleMania 33. Thank you so much for the memories and representing everything great about pro wrestling storytelling done at the highest level. I also want to send a special shout out to my main man, a friend of TSC News, Jim Ross, WWE Hall of Famer. The legend is back in WWE. He has signed a two-year deal, so maybe you won't see him on some Monday Night Raws. Maybe you won't see him on some SmackDown Lives, but you better believe you're going to see him a whole lot on the WWE Network. You're going to see him a whole lot on WrestleMania these next couple years, and hopefully a few more pay-per-views along the way. Now, what does that mean for his New Japan Pro Wrestling on Access TV gig? New Japan airs every Friday night on Access. That remains to be seen, but I am certainly happy that good old JR is back home. And we're going to make ourselves right at home with a longtime friend, longtime guest of TSC News, Paul the Mauler Lazenby. If you don't know about this guy, you're about to get to know him. Believe me, this is one story you definitely want to hear. We have right here via Skype, Paul the Mauler Lazenby. He is a man with more job titles than Ric Flair has world titles. We're going to talk to him about wrestling, mixed martial arts, his recent appearance on Supergirl, and much, much more. Paul, how's it going, man? Awesome, man. It's, it hasn't been this good in a very long time, so anybody who catches me complaining is entitled to punch me in the back of the head at least once. <laughs> now, before we get started, off the top of your head, can you name all your job titles? Oh, dude, you're catching me flat-footed. Uh, let's see. Um, actor, stuntman, uh, roving correspondent for the Killing the Town podcast, author, um, MMA trainer, Muay Thai trainer. Uh, I know there's one or two more in there, but I've forgotten right now. You've been getting a lot of buzz on Twitter the last few years, really, from your book, When We Were Bouncers, your recent appearances in The Marine Four. You were did some work for Star Trek. Even were in Deadpool, sort of, which we'll talk about. And you were recently on Supergirl, although you were a bit unrecognizable compared to how we see you right now. How was that experience? It was a lot of fun, man. I, I had so much fun on that one. It was uh, a full prosthetic deal. I was, I was playing uh, an alien stolen art dealer named Mandrax, if you can wrap your brain around that. But it involved three and a half hours of two uh, makeup artists uh, working on me to get me into the prosthetics. And, and of course, once you're in it, you're in it. And that's where uh, a lot of people turn down that kind of work because they get claustrophobic. But uh, I, I really dug it. And I also got to spend about 14 hours of that day beating the unholy crap out of my buddy, Mike Lewinson, who was doubling Guardian. So uh, it was a, a double bonus for me. Now, you said with prosthetics, it takes a while to do. People get claustrophobic. What was your first time doing it? Uh, the first... Uh, time of any kind of prosthetics work was I believe 2002 uh, I was doing uh, an English toy commercial uh, for they have a line of there called Action Man 
which is kind of like the G.I. Joe dolls of the 1970s. And um, I, they were debuting a new villain called Antifreeze, and that was me. So it was actually kind of cool because uh, I was working on a show called Andromeda playing some crazy tattooed-up cage fighter. And they had to grab me off set as soon as I was done, 14 hours on that set, and then take me up to Whistler from Burnaby, B.C., I got like two hours sleep and then down to the lobby of the hotel where they had a makeup station set up there and then like two hours to get me into all that gear and then out to a helicopter landing pad and we, we took off to a glacier outside of Whistler and shot for the day. So that, that was one of my more memorable, job, memorable jobs. That was fun. That's pretty damn cool. Now, some of you may know Paul from Killing the Town, the popular podcast on Podcast One with Lance Storm and Cyrus. You've also appeared on Steve Austin's show, Chris Jericho's show. You're actually Steve Austin's personal stuntman, but before all that, you were a wrestler. What came first for you, your love for wrestling or martial arts? Oh, definitely wrestling. I, I never wanted to be a legitimate fighter. Uh, I always wanted to be a professional wrestler. So uh, my first love was powerlifting and strongman, and it still is. I still do it to this day. But uh, then I, I moved into wrestling because I've been a wrestling fan since I was a little kid and, and love that too. And I had two major goals as a professional wrestler. One was to get to um, a major organization, whether it's WWE, WCW, whatever, and make a full-time living. And the other one was to wrestle in Japan at least once. I, I saw an old, you know, dating myself, but I saw an old VHS tape of uh, Japanese uh, wrestling in the late 80s, I think. And it just, it captivated me. Like, I have to go there, I have to wrestle there. And the fighting actually, I fell over sideways into. You know, I, I just I was at a wrestling show in Detroit for um, Insane Championship Wrestling in Detroit. Uh, shout out to At Huck and uh, thank you to the late Malcolm Monroe for taking me into that organization. And uh, I met this lady named Phyllis Lee, who was a friend of the Malenkos, and uh, she was a friend of Carl Gotch, who was one of the trainers of the uh, elite Japanese fighters in the Pancrase organization. And those of you who aren't familiar with the name. Between 93 and about 97, Pancrase was the number one MMA group in the world. So this is around 96, and, and uh, I just made my way into fighting there, not because I had any experience. I, I didn't. I didn't even wrestle on the high school team or anything. Uh, but I just wanted to go to Japan so bad, I was willing to take an ass-kicking to do it. And uh, that's exactly what happened, but I, I guess I took an entertaining enough ass-kicking. They let me live and train at the dojo for a while. I fought the world champion and I, I just kind of worked my way into, uh, to fighting sports, uh, without even really meaning to. That's very cool. Well, not the punch in the face part doesn't seem very cool, but I would imagine the Japanese experience with Pancrase was interesting because from what I understand, at least back in that era, it was not only mixed martial arts, but they incorporated a lot of elements of pro wrestling. Well, they considered themselves to be pro wrestlers. I mean, I remember the first time I got in the ring, uh, I, it was sprung like a wrestling ring. It had three ropes. It, it was a professional wrestling ring. And I remember thinking that was kind of curious, but then when you look back at it, you realize they fought real fights under pro wrestling rules. You get the, the open hand strike to the head, which was a, a pro wrestling rule up until recently when WWE started allowing closed fists. Uh, you could punch to the body, uh, the rope escapes, uh, stuff like that. So, um, it, it was very much a group where they booked it like a wrestling organization, which is part of the reason that I got in is because they had never had a Canadian fight there before. So, you know, I sent in my pictures and at the time I was what, 28 years old. I was a muscular, good looking kid. So that, okay, we'll bring him over and, and, you know, one of our guys will kick his ass. And then we got a Canadian's head to hang on the mantle aside, alongside all the other nations that have been represented here. And, um, so they, they, they very much had the pro wrestling mindset, you know, down to the point that it's been brought up a million times before that, 
you know, Masakatsu Funaki and Minoru Suzuki, the two major players in Pancrase, they were so far ahead of the curve at the time that they could make a fight go whichever way they wanted it to go most of the time without the cooperation of the other person. So you could be in there thinking you're fighting for real and they're kind of stringing you along and making a show out of it and then finishing you off at their leisure. And, and that's it's that mindset that that made Pancras what it was. It made it such a great storytelling organization most of the time. Now, besides job titles, okay, I've looked at your IMDb resume and it is ridiculous. Now, this is around what, 97, 98 when you're at Pancrase? Yes, 97. Okay, at what point did you say, okay, this getting punched in the face stuff is all right, but I want to try my hand in acting and stunt work? Well, again, that happened by accident. Anyway, and it bears out what I always say about not saying no to things. I mean, if you get an opportunity to do something crazy and it's entirely outside your wheelhouse, but you think there might just be a chance I could pull this off or I just want to experience that, do it. And, and that's exactly how I ended up in most of the stuff that I've done. I, I was terrified. I wasn't a real fighter. I was a street fighter at best. But I went to Japan and I fought some of the best fighters in the world and it ended up being a great thing for me. And uh, the same thing happened in stunts. Uh, what happened was my career was petering out in Japan. Um, I, I learning on the fly, so I lost all my fights. I didn't start winning fights until later on. And uh, my buddy, Dr. Luther, who as uh, a name that uh, anybody who's familiar with Japanese wrestling from the 90s will know, he was a huge star with the FMW promotion. And uh, really a, a, one of those elite talents that just slipped through the cracks really should have ended up in a major promotion. And, and just because the chips didn't fall in his direction, he didn't. But he's a huge, huge talent and a very good friend of mine. And he was living in Vancouver, and he used to bug me all the time and say, look, dude, you know, you're know, you living in Kitchener, Ontario. There's nothing going on out there. Move out here. And he, I decided to do it when there was nothing going on for me in Japan anymore, and there was active wrestling women in Vancouver. At the time, Ontario was dead. So I moved out as a last stab at making it as a professional wrestler. And it was just exactly around the time when I was realizing that window had kind of shut for me as far as making it in a large scale organization that I just happened to meet a guy named James Bamford in the gym that we both trained at. And he was a stunt coordinator, stunt performer, uh, still is now director. And, uh, he was coordinating a, a kid's show called Los Luchadores, which was about Mexican pro wrestling superheroes. And we call him Bam Bam. Bam Bam hates pro wrestling with a passion. He despises it. He can't stand it. So he didn't want to do the homework. And he asked around the gym and uh, to see if there was a, a pro wrestler training there. And we started talking and he brought me into the business that way. So that, that was my foothold. But yeah, it, it all happened peripherally just from continuing to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And sometimes what sticks is something entirely unexpected. You've had a lot of great breaks in your career, especially lately. But was there one early on when you started doing acting and stunt work where you said, man, I got, I got some momentum here. This is something I could continue to do for a sustained amount of time. It was almost right off the bat just because I was lucky enough to start uh, – I, I wear, wore several hats in the uh, acting and stunt industry to start with. So actually my first job on set was on a wire team. And uh, I'm sure everybody – if you've seen any kind of behind-the-scenes footage when they've got performers hanging up on wires doing aerial stunts, you'll often see that the wire goes through an overhead-mounted pulley and then back down – and it's attached to a rope that a, a dude is pulling. You know, sometimes it's a machine, but a lot of the time it's just a person pulling. That was my first job in the industry. But it was on a show that had wire gags every single episode. So almost right out of the gate, between that job and working as a bouncer at the time, I was able to 
make enough money between the two of them to at least keep the wolf away from the door. Uh, when I really started getting momentum, though, was about uh, three years later. Um, business was starting to pick up. It was about 2003. And uh, the Chronicles of Riddick, the movie, came to town. And uh, the second most influential stunt coordinator in my career, Dean Cho, who's another guy that's just been backing me uh, through my entire career, he uh, he took over that show. And he just said, look, don't take any other work. I'm going to lock you down in the show. And I, that's the first movie I worked on from the first day of rehearsal to the last day of rap. And that was just such a successful year. I started thinking, okay, maybe it's time to start considering myself a full-time stuntman now. Man, there's only one Paul Lazenby. We'll be back with the second half of our Paul Lazenby interview later in the show. But this is the Wrestling Meets MMA edition of TSC News. And we have right here the People's Podcaster, the one and only Scott Anderson. There's only one Scott Anderson. And for whatever reason, Scott is bringing some random Wrestling Meets MMA facts in black and white. Scott, what the hell are you doing, man? Fred, guys look tougher in black and white. How? Why? It worked for Brando. I, I have I have no comeback for that, so let's get started. All right. This week, we're doing the MMA edition of TSC News, so I have some interesting wrestling slash MMA facts for you. What do, first, I want to ask you a question, Fred. What do the names Dave Bautista, Nathan Jones, Kid Cash, Jushin Thunder Liger, CM Punk, and Dr. Death Steve Williams all have in common. They're all a lot tougher than you and me. That is true. But the correct answer that we were looking for on the panel is they are a combined one in five in MMA fights. Dave Batista is the only one victorious. He lasted four minutes of the first round before he got his win. Now, here's a fun fact, which is actually not really a fun fact. In the five combined losses... Those wrestlers turned MMA fighters lasted an average of 97.6 seconds. So, well, wait, you, said, you said 90, wait, 97.6 seconds, not minutes. Basically a minute and a half. So about a minute and a half longer than you and I would last in a cage. Absolutely. Which, hey, props to them. Yeah. But it just goes to show that maybe it's not for everybody. Uh, this, of course, was not the result that you had hoped for, but you talked all along about this was about the journey as well. So now that it's, it's, it's over, at least for the moment, uh, didn't come up your way. How are you feeling about the whole process right now? The process was magical. You know, I'm just disappointed. I'm, I'm beating myself up way more than, uh, than I got beat up. You know, I'm, I'm supremely disappointed, but you know, the answer to your question is, I, aside from the outcome, wouldn't change anything for the world. Another thing was like, if, well, CM Punk get out there and, and you know embarrass himself. Well, he looked terrible, and you know I would I would think a lot of people would call this a lopsided loss. But are you are you proud of you know what you put out there tonight? <laughs> I, I don't think I th there's there's probably an alternate reality where I win and I'm still disappointed in myself. Uh, that's just that's just who I am. You know uh, I'm I'm just really really hard on myself. I, you know I lost and it sucks. And it was lopsided, and it's upsetting, but, you know, I, I know I'm better than that. <clears throat> On the flip side, some of the more successful pro wrestlers turned MMA fighters are, believe it or not, Alberto Del Rio, Sean O'Hare, if you remember him. How's about Shinsuke Nakamura, just recently brought up to SmackDown Live? 
Bobby Lashley, of course, fighting for Bellator currently. And, of course, we cannot forget Brock Lesnar, last appeared at UFC 200. How's about this one, Fred? Bam Bam Bigelow had one MMA fight in Japan, but he later said that it was a staged fight. However, he took the paycheck, so can't really blame the guy for that too much. And Bob Sapp, if you remember him, he was in the 2005 remake of The Longest Yard. He was the first African-American, first and only to date African-American IWGP heavyweight champion. Believe it or not, he defended and defeated Shinsuke Nakamura. So that's kind of an interesting fact for you. Wow, and, and that was back in New Japan Pro Wrestling at JPW, which you can currently watch weekly Friday nights on Access TV. However, it does go both ways. There were a few MMA fighters turned WWE slash TNA wrestlers. How's about the name Josh Barnett? He recently debuted on Impact Wrestling. If you remember the name Daniel Pewter, he was an ex-WWE Tough Enough winner. I remember him for being in the Royal Rumble many years back and just getting totally totally destroyed by the four or five men that were involved in that. And I remember Bob Holly specifically just taking him to the woodshed, so to speak. We Daniel had Dan- Pewter, that's an interesting yes. name because he was actually a former TSC News guest. And since you brought him up, let's take a look back at the time he had a little confrontation with new WWE Hall of Famer, Kurt Angle. Your incident with Kurt Angle, for some younger fans that may not know, I believe Angle had some type of amateur wrestling challenge or grappling challenge years ago, I believe back in late 2004 on SmackDown when you guys were doing the million dollar tough enough and angle kind of dominated all all the contestants and you were up. He took you down. I guess he tried to hurt you and you instinctively locked in a Kimura and almost broke his arm and made him tap out until Jimmy Corderas counted the one, two, three, even though your shoulders weren't down on the mat. What was that like in the heat of the moment? And I'd imagine the aftermath was pretty wild. Yeah, well, I thought it would be different. I I mean, I I think that, you know, when when I got done, you know, uh, trying to snap his arm off, he didn't know what to do. He was – I think he was just stunned, literally. He he didn't know what to say, what to do, because he just got caught and almost snapped his arm. Now – what happened was we were wrestling. He's definitely stronger than me. Pushed me against the ropes, got behind me. I key locked him, pulled him into a Kimura, and then I was I was going to snap his arm. I just wanted to tap him out. Okay, maybe I want to snap his arm. But <laughs> the the idea was that he just broke. Uh, if you take it back about three to five minutes in in the in the in the deal, he wrestled Chris Naraki, which was one of my buddies on on SmackDown and uh, on the Tough Enough and he broke three of his ribs. So we went out there and did this competition, up downs, and we ran sprints, a pasta, ran more sprints. And then we went out there and did this up down competition. They picked Chris because they said, get the other, get the blonde guy out. We were both blonde. So I went out, he wrestled Chris, but he knew I really won. Um, and so he threw me in there. He was like anybody else. And I raised my hand. Um, I, I think that's the day that everybody started rooting for me and my whole team started rooting I mean the, not my team but the contestants started rooting against me so it's pretty interesting to see how fast um people can turn on you because man <laughs> and they were out partying all the time I, I was trying to go to sleep get my rest get my workouts in eat the right food so it was, it was pretty cool um to be able to see how hard I was working and it, it was nuts 
It's a good time now. You're a good time. I'll snap at Kurt Angle's arm, and you guys had beef for a long time. Is it true that Dana White tried to book you versus Kurt Angle sometime? I believe probably would have been around like 06, 07. Yeah, so he – he um, I was on Tough Enough. Actually, the first time was I was on Tough Enough. I, ju- I, I think I just won Tough Enough, and they called me the UFC guy or something like that on Tough Enough. So I won Tough Enough. Dana called Bob or Bob called Dana, I forget. And, and they said, Hey, we want you on the first reality show. And they offered me like 500 bucks a week. And I was like, you guys are crazy. I'm, I'm being guaranteed 5,000 a week here. Um, but I did seriously consider it. Um, so I stuck with WWE, you know, because I, you know, I, I loved it. I was having fun with it and I was, you know, it was, it was, it was good money. Yeah. Now, but the second, but the second time, then he flew me out. To, he flew us out to Vegas uh, after I got done with tough. Uh, after I got done with my contract, my WWE, and then he offered another deal, and and uh, we turned we turned that down too. So I went to Strikeforce. Scott's segments get a little bit uh more unique uh, each week. Not complaining, just saying. Now, back to part two of our interview with Paul the Mauler Lazenby. And going through all the adversity did in pro wrestling and MMA, and let, let's face it, you know, adversity is like your middle name when you're going through those respective fields. Yeah. There's a very small window of opportunity. The training, the conditioning is pretty damn intense. There's, there's no real easy day at the office. Did that experience MMA and pro wrestling help you to deal with stunt work and also to deal with some of the BS in Hollywood? Absolutely. I mean, uh, pro wrestling is an incredibly corrupt business uh, in a lot of ways. You know, there's a lot that's great about it, too. I love that. I love it to this day. But, yeah, there's a lot of corruption and, and a lot of scams that go on in professional wrestling. So there was really nothing in the film and television industry that surprised me. You know, you can't out sleaze pro wrestling. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it really uh, it really did prepare me a lot. And then MMA, uh, when I came in, actually, a lot of people were scared of me because – this is, again, you know, I, I got in the industry in the year 2000, and uh, people weren't that familiar with MMA. They just knew it was this crazy no-holds-barred stuff that animals did to each other in locked cages and pits and things like that. And uh, so I think that I ended up having – I had gone through a lot tougher training than I was going to experience on set. And even though I, I received some horrendous injuries on set – uh, I never had a tougher day on set than I had in the Pancras Dojo. I can tell you that for nothing. What's the worst injury you ever had on set? It was actually my very first day on set. It was Ooh. my first stunt, rather. It wasn't my first day on set, but the first time I was ever in front of the cameras. And it wasn't even my first day. It was the very first take. The first time they were rolling the cameras on me in my entire career. And it was actually uh, an actor named Holt McCallany. And it was, it was a total mistake. But, you know, Holt would get very excited during his, his fight scenes. And he was also training with Boss Rutten, so he knew how to throw his punches and kicks kicks to maximum effect. And it was just one of those things where he got a little too close, and um, I was because of the choreography of the scene, I was moving my head into his fist, which more than doubled doubled the power of the punch, and it completely destroyed my entire orbital bone in this eye, and uh, damaged the uh, tore the retina, I think, and, and did did permanent vision damage that I'm still suffering today. Um, so it took three laser surgeries and one actual invasive surgery where they had to take the eye right out of my skull to repair some of the damage. And, uh, that, that would definitely qualify as my worst day on set. 
Oh, man. Have you ever had a chance to find Holt and be like, hey, buddy, uh, how, how's everything going? Well, the thing is, he was around town for a little while longer after that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it was an accident. You know, it happens on set like that. And, you know, especially when the actor's really getting into the role and they're really excited. And it, then uh, sometimes things can happen. So, you know, I, I've been hit by other actors, too. And it's just it's part of the job. You know, I don't think Holt walked on that set that day saying I'm going to bust Lazenby's head open. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold any grudge against him at all. You're also pretty famous for being a stuntman for a guy you kind of look like. Stone Cold Steve Austin, WWE Hall of Famer. How'd you get hooked up with Steve? Uh, well, it actually started when he came to Vancouver to make a film called Damage. And uh, that was a bare-knuckle fighting underground fighting ring movie. And I actually wasn't hired to be his double. That went to a gentleman named Kevin Rushton, who's a great stunt guy from out in Ontario. Uh, but uh, actually, Steve accidentally broke my nose during the filming of that. Uh, again, you know, total accident. If anybody knows how to throw a punch and not hurt somebody, it's Steve. So that that's proof that it can happen to anybody. You you, you get thrown punches back and forth. I've clipped people by accident, too. It happens. But uh, working on that film, a lot of people were kind of looking at Steve and looking at me and looking at Steve and looking at me and realizing that I was actually um, – a better physical match for Steve than Kevin was. So it turns out Steve had signed a deal with a production company that wanted to shoot all their movies in Vancouver. And there were like four or five movies I think they had uh, on the deal. So the next time he came to town, my buddy Laurel Chartrand, uh, he was the coordinator and he called me up and brought me in and the director agreed. So I started doubling Steve on the next movie, which is called The Stranger. And then I think we did five more movies after that where just he kept coming back and, uh, you know, I, I really owe him a big debt of gratitude because I think after The Stranger, he was supposed to come back for Hunt to Kill. And this has never happened to me before, but I didn't get a call from the stunt coordinator or the casting director or anybody like that. I got a call from Steve. And he said, look, I'm coming back and, and you're my guy. So, you know, if you're available, I want you to work on this movie. And that was really cool. It was, it was a nice vote of confidence to have after having doubled him the previous time. And, uh, yeah, just, just an absolutely great dude. You know, if I had to pick a, a singular career highlight from 17 years in the film and TV industry, it would be my run doubling Steve Austin. What's the coolest thing about Steve Austin that fans don't know? That the Steve you see on TV is the Steve you get and that he has absolutely nothing to prove to himself or anybody else. You know, the toughest guys, the legitimately toughest guys you're going to meet are the ones who aren't concerned with what other people think. They're not concerned with making sure everybody in the room knows they're tough. Uh, they're just nice to people that are nice to them. And if you're disrespectful to them, then they're disrespectful to you. And that's Steve to a T. You know, every day on every movie, no matter whether he was having a rough day or a good day, he was as nice to the production assistant wearing a, a reflective vest and watching cars in the parking lot as he was to the executive producer. You know, that's always the guy you're going to get. And that's one of the things I appreciate about him. Thanks so much to Paul Lazenby for the time. We had such an awesome time chatting with him that we're going to have him back next week to talk about motion capturing in video games. He did some work for a little franchise by the name of Gears of War, and he's going to chat about the state of WWE, including whether or not Roman Reigns is really the big dog. But until then, I appreciate the time. I appreciate you guys watching. If you want to see more, please log on to youtube.com slash the sports courier. You can subscribe and check out all our videos. You can also check us out on soundcloud.com slash TSC news, iTunes, Stitcher, Google play, you name it. 
We got it. You can follow us on Twitter at Sports Courier, at Fred Ricciani, at TSC News on Instagram. Until next time, everybody, as always, enjoy the matches.